Father, as your word says, I pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, we pray that you would come by your spirit and lead us to Christ through your word. It's in his name we pray. Amen.
There's the story of a famous tightrope walker named Charles Blondine, and Blondine was the first one to set out to walk on a tightrope across the Niagara Falls. And so on one day, it suspended 160 feet above the falls with the raging waters down below him. With nothing but a three-inch wire made of hemp, Blondine set out to walk. And not only did he make it across, he would end up doing so several times. For example, he would do it with a pole for balance and then set out another time with a pole and throw it halfway in the middle into the waters and finish. He did it walking backwards. He did it walking blindfolded. He did it walking on stilts. He did it pushing a wheelbarrow. One time he did it carrying a portable stove. He stopped halfway across the falls, made an omelet, and then drank a glass of champagne and then walked to the other side. 300 times or so in his life, he walked back and forth across the falls. And one of those 300 times, he even did it carrying a man on his back. His manager was a man named Harry Colcord, and Harry Colcord decided that he would climb onto Charles's back and walk across the falls. And, and before they set out, Charles turned to his manager, Harry, and said, Harry, from this moment on, you and I are one. Where I lean, you are to lean. Do not try to attempt to balance yourself, for we will certainly fall. You and I must move exactly the same way. Now you think of that, it's one thing to trust someone or to applaud from below or to cheer on from one side of the falls or another. It's another to trust someone so much that you climb on their back, embrace and hold on to them for dear life across the falls. As I think of that, imagine with me for a moment that as they're making that trip, that halfway across that this manager, Harry, looks down at the raging waters below, begins to realize what he's doing, and imagine him saying, stop, that's it, you got to put me down, I I'm going back. Now, it's an unthinkable thing because having come thus far embracing Blondine, what other way is there to finish except to continue as you began? There is no going back, and there is no charting a new course, and there is no veering, and there is no starting a different way. The only way to finish is to continue as you began. In fact, if the manager said that, I imagine that Charles would have said to him, listen again, don't sway. Don't lean, don't veer, don't go off on a new path. Finish by continuing and remaining as you were. This is what I think the Apostle Paul is telling Timothy in the passage we're looking at that Anne read for us. So if you've got a Bible, you need to turn with me to 2 Timothy. If you don't have one, there's a copy right in front of you. Would you take that Bible and turn it to page 996, 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we're looking at verses 10 through 17. And what you'll see in this passage is that the Apostle Paul is writing to his Padawan, to his disciple, to Timothy... And he's saying to him, endure. And he's saying to him, continue. And specifically, Samarod, he's saying, continue in the way of life and the word of God that you've begun in, endure in that way. Continue in both the way of life and the word of God. He's going to tell Timothy, Timothy, you started this walk joined with me. And so now, Following me as I have followed Christ and embracing the scriptures, this way of life and this word of God, you need to not sway and not veer and not chart off on a new path, but you need to remain and continue 
and finish even as you began. The section begins in verse 10. Would you look there for a second? And as you do, you'll notice right away that it starts with a contrast, right? You, however. The phrase there is literally, but you. As for you, you, however. And for that contrast to make sense, you have to remember what we said last week. That Sibi preached to us from the section right above. So you can scan up and you'll see in 3 verse 1 to 9... You'll remember that Sibby told us that Paul had just warned Timothy that there would be difficult last days. The days we're living in now, right? Understand this, that in the last days there will be difficulty. And then in verses 2 through 5, he enumerates on the people of those last days. And in particular, if you remember, we got those 19 descriptors of the people in the last days. It started in verse 2 with, they love themselves, ends brackets in verse 4 with, and they do not love God. Right? That's what these people are like. They love themselves. They're lovers of self and not lovers of God. And where will you find these people in two verses following, in verse 2 and following? They won't be out there in the world. They will be here in the pews. Because remember he said, they has a form of godliness while having none of its power. Meaning they're, they're the people that you'll see sitting right next to you. That will mark, be marked by these 19 descriptors having a, an appearance of godliness, a form of spirituality, but without true, genuine gospel power. They know how to play church, and yet their lives are marked with love for self, and pride, and arrogance, and love of money, and not a love for pleasure, and not for God. That's what it'll be. And so any youthful naivete that this young minister has, that if he just works hard enough, that if he just preaches hard enough or prays long enough, that all the people in the pews will embrace something else, Paul wipes that out. Understand this. In the last days, there will be times of difficulty, and there will be people in your pews who are marked by these 19 characteristics. Remember, Sibby told us, it's like Paul came onto the loudspeaker like a pilot and said, turbulence is coming. Okay, now though, Having said that, having warned of that, he turns back to Timothy with this contrast. But you, you, however, as for you, you can hear the contrast, right? They're like this. They'll be like that. But as for you, you, however, verse 10, you, however, have followed my teaching and my conduct. My aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. You can hear the shift in 3, 1 to 9 to now 10 through 17, even in just the pronouns. It shifts because 3, 1 to 9 was about them and what they are like. But now, Timothy, you're not with them. You're with me. And you followed my teaching and my conduct and my aim and my faith and my patience and my steadfastness. Timothy is being reminded, I and not they have set the pattern that you were to follow. You're not with them. You're with me. And I have been the pattern by which you were to follow. He, Paul, was the pattern for every young minister is what he's saying. Now, Paul is not pointing to himself because he's bragging or he's boasting, but he's reminding Timothy, you didn't get on the tightrope with them. You got on with me. 
It was my way that you had embraced. You, however, verse 10, have followed my teaching. And the word followed there is not just you took notice of. You from a distance and dispassionately observed. You, you made some scribbles or, or took some notes. But rather, it's the word for you had embraced. You had adopted. You made your own. You see, what he's saying here is, look, Timothy, if there's a list of 19 descriptors to describe them, that they love themselves and they love money and they are proud and they're arrogant and they're reckless and they're disobedient and they, they seek pleasure and not God. If that's the 19 descriptors that describe them, Timothy, there's a different list that has described me and moreover must describe you. There's a list of other words that has marked my life and must mark your life. That's what he's saying here. You, however, have followed my teaching. That's the marker. That is the sound words, the gospel word, the word about the God who loved us and sent his son, who lived and died and rose again and ascended and is seated at the right hand and will come again as judge and Lord of the world. That gospel word, you followed my teaching and my conduct. You saw in me a way of life that was in accord with my message, that I practiced what I preached, that there was no disconnect. You saw my aim in life, that I, like I said in, in Acts 20, when I was bidding the Ephesians farewell, my one aim is to finish the ministry that Jesus gave to me. You saw my faith, my trust in God. You followed and embraced my patience that if we're going to live in these last days and deal with difficult people and have opponents, like I told you in chapter 2, you're going to have to patiently deal with them in gentleness, hoping that perhaps you might even win some of them. You know of my love. That is where they're marked by love for self and not for God. You know that our call has been to be lovers of God and lovers of others. We love God and we love people. You know of my steadfastness. Have you noticed the names in 2 Timothy? That in these four chapters we get the names like Phygelus and Hermogenes and Hymenaeus and Philetus and Demas in chapter 4 who love with the present world has deserted me. There is a long list of names in 2 Timothy of men who have started but have not been steadfast. But you have followed my steadfastness. And that steadfastness, which even continued to my persecutions and sufferings in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra. Now you think of this. Paul could have named any number of places. He'd been persecuted in lots of places that Timothy knew of, joined him in. Why does he name these? If you remember back, we preached Acts before we preached 2 Timothy. And in Acts 13 and 14, he was in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra when his relationship with Timothy first began. That's where he recruited him from. This was Timothy's hometown, his region. This was the beginning of his relationship with the apostle. And he's pointing back to say, from the moment you and I began walking on this tightrope, it's been persecution and suffering. This isn't a new phenomenon. This is how it began. In Antioch, he was persecuted and driven out of the district. In Iconium, the text says he was mistreated and they tried to stone him. In Lystra, they did stone him and left him half dead. They dragged him out of the city thinking he was dead and he revived. And Timothy, you were there for all of that. And you also know, Timothy, that yet from them all the Lord rescued me. And moreover, Timothy, 
He'll rescue you. In fact, such is the confidence of this apostle in the Lord's rescue that he's pointing Timothy to, that even in the next chapter, as he's closing his letter, in 4 verse 18, he'll say this, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. The Lord will rescue me and from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Would you remember, Seven Mile Road, that the man saying that, confident of that, is on death row. That in a few weeks he will have his head cut off. And yet he is sure of a rescue that the Lord has and a safety that the Lord keeps that not even a chopped head can remove. That he's sure that the Lord will safely bring him into his heavenly kingdom and he will do the same for you, Timothy. This, Timothy, this seven-mile road is the list we're to be about. If that's what described them, this is what's to describe us. Teaching and conduct and our aim and our faith and our patience and our love and our steadfastness and our persecution and our suffering and our confidence that the Lord will deliver us from them all. This is the list, Timothy. This is the list, Semmaru. Believing this, living this, teaching this, embracing this, continuing in this, suffering for this. And this isn't unique to Paul and Timothy, which is why in verse 12 he'll add, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Meaning, Timothy, this isn't just my path, this isn't my tightrope, or, or just yours. All who will journey this way, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This narrow walk, with its sufferings and its persecution, is the lot for us all. But what's the alternative? Let me ask you, if you're not down with persecutions and sufferings, so then what's the other option? To join them? You, you, you followed me, not them. Because this is what they are like. And he'll tell us, what's the other option? If you follow them, listen, their life for right now looks like it's going from good to great. But he'll tell you in verse 13, while we're suffering, here's what's happening. Evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. What's the other option? If you're not following me, you're with them in 3, 1 to 9. And if you're with them, yes, as they love themselves, and as they love money, and as they love pleasure, and as they're proud, and as they're reckless, their lives look like it's going from good to great, but in fact, they are going from bad to worse. And they are deceiving and being deceived. They're dancing on the Titanic and don't know it. Yes, it's a ball for a few hours, but this thing is going to sink before you know it. And you don't want any part of that, Timothy. You don't want to be duped by the devil while you're dancing on the Titanic. And so there is no alternative to join them. This is the way for us. And so he says, evil people will go from bad to worse. And as soon as he speaks of them, you get another contrast. Just like in verse 10, but as for you, now in verse 14, you get another, but you, Timothy. They will go from bad to worse, but you, as for you, <clears throat> you, however is how it reads again, verse 14, But as for you, <clears throat> continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. Here's the contrast. The evil people of verse 13, 
They will go on. The word there for go on is proceed. They'll advance. They'll move forward in going from bad to worse. But as for you, you are to continue. And the word continue is the exact opposite of go on. It's the exact opposite of proceed. It's the exact opposite of go forward. Where they will go on from bad to worse, you are to remain. You are not to go on. You are not to advance. You are not to proceed. You are to stay. You are to remain. You are to endure. You are not to veer. You are not to sway or to lean or to chart a new path. You are to continue. And continue in what? He tells us in verse 14, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God, Timothy, and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Here's what Paul says. Paul says, unlike them, you have followed me and my conduct and my way, and you're to continue in that. And moreover, they're going from bad to worse, but for you, you are to continue in what you have learned in the scriptures that you were acquainted with from your infancy on. Here's what Paul is saying. This young minister is not only to continue in Paul's pattern, but in God's word. And in fact, God's word is the means by which he will continue in Paul's pattern. That it is by staying with this book that you will live my teaching and my conduct of life and my faith, and my patience, and my love. You are to continue in the sacred writings, which you were acquainted with from your childhood on, because this word is profitable, is what he's saying. How, Sevma Road, are you and I to continue in the last days when things will be difficult and people will go from bad to worse, you and I must continue to cling to the sacred writings so that we might continue to walk in the way patterned here by Paul. You are to continue to walk in this way and to hold on to this word. Now, maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. And maybe it is perhaps the most puzzling thing for you that this group of people would cling so tightly to this ancient book. I mean, there's a part of you, and I can, an understandable part of you, a part that I can sympathize with. A part of you that would say, look, it's 2019. You all seem like fairly intelligent, reasonable people. And you really are clinging to the words of this ancient book as your standard for all that is true and right and good and how you see the world. But here's the thing. I remember hearing a friend say, the truth is, everyone has a Bible. Meaning everyone has a set of words by which they define reality, by which they see the world, by which they operate, by which they define what's good and true and beautiful and right. Everyone has a set of sacred words or principles by which the culture and world is shaped. It's 2019 in America. So you'd hear, be true to yourself. Who said that? Where did it come from? Or, or you heard, do what makes you happy. Or don't impose your beliefs on anyone else. Listen, those are 
words, dogma, sacred to us, to our culture, so much so that they feel like they were wired into ultimate reality. We can't even conceive of a reality where those words don't define truth and the way of life and how everyone should be. Everyone knows you have to do what makes you happy. And everyone knows you have to be true to yourself. And everyone knows that you can't impose your beliefs on anyone else. Who said? The truth is all of us have sacred words. All of us have dogma and doctrine. All of us live by a set of principled words by which we define what's good and what's right. And and the question is, who speaks? Who are our apostles? Who are our prophets? Perhaps they might be Hollywood or Disney. They might be CNN or Fox News. They might be a celebrity or a pop star. They might be Muhammad or Buddha. They might be Dawkins or Peterson, but everybody's got a Bible. It might not be neatly bound together in one cover in one book, but everybody's got words that dictate how you see the world. And here's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying this book that you hold in your lap, its claim and his claim is that these words are not the current thought of this culture. That this book is not the opinions of the present day. This is not the wisdom of this present moment. Paul's word is all scripture is God-breathed. That Paul's insistence is this book in your lap, this book in my hand, is the God-breathed, that's the word there, the God-exhaled words of God, the puffs of air that come not from a man's mouth, but from the mouth of God. All scripture, he says, is God-breathed. That is the claim of this book of itself, is that just like the puffs of air that came from the mouth of God, when he said, let there be, and suddenly that which did not exist suddenly existed, That life-giving, creating, powerful, authoritative, universe-making word of God that those puffs of air have been recorded in what's called this book. That's the claim of this book. That's what Paul is saying, that these are not merely the words of man, not merely the puffs of air that fly to the ceiling or fall to the ground, but that this book is the creating, life-giving, authoritative, perfect wise, beautiful, trustworthy, living, active, powerful, efficient, sufficient words of God. That these are the words that are sweeter than honey and more desired than silver and gold. And by keeping them, your servant is warned. These are the words that are a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. These are the words that you should eat and devour. That's the claim of Paul over this book. Timothy, you keep continuing in this way by following this book because these are the God-breathed words of God. And moreover, Timothy, you continue in this way because you know what this book can do. What can this God-breathed book do? He says in verse 15, this book, the sacred writings, the scriptures, can make one wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That is to say, this book and the pages contained therein can make one wise for salvation. Salvation meaning deliverance, rescue from evil and its consequences. This book can save you, rescue you from evil and its consequences, ultimately even the judgment of God by salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, meaning that this book from cover to cover is something and is not something. 
This book then is not a science book. This book then is not a magic eight ball that you ruffle through its pages when you need to know what college to go to or who to marry. This book then is not a rule book or a legal code. This book is not a set of tales or fables or morals or Aesop's stories. This book, Paul saying, contains that which makes you wise, instructs you, points you to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Meaning, this book is not about me, and this book is not about you. The claim of this book is that from its opening cover to its closing cover, this book is about Jesus Christ and the salvation that is found through faith in him. That from cover to cover, this book is testifying to how you can be wise through faith in Jesus. So that when you open its first pages, and you're in what's called the Old Covenant or the Old Testament, these pages are pointing you to, preparing you for, prophesying of, and getting you ready for Jesus Christ. That its pages are foreshadowing him and foretelling of his coming. So that when you cross over this old covenant, and you get to the Gospels, and you get to Matthew, and Mark, and Luke, and John, this book will tell you of the birth, and the life, and the teachings, and the deeds, and the miracles, and the death, and the resurrection, and the ascension of that Jesus Christ. And then when you cross over and you get into Acts, this book will tell you of the continued works of that Jesus, now ascended from heaven through his disciples on earth. So that when you read past that into the epistles, like 2 Timothy, then it tells us of how the work of Jesus, accomplished on the cross, continued in his resurrection and ascension, is now bearing itself on believers and on the church like we are right now. All the way till you get to the end and the last book, you read of how Jesus is seated on the throne, how he will conquer his enemies, he will win in the end, Evil will be judged, he will return, and there will be a new heavens and a new earth, and they will all live happily ever after. That's the book. That from cover to cover, it is telling you the story of the creation and the fall and the redemption and the restoration that God has through faith in Jesus Christ. And your life and mine finds its small story within that big story. That our entire lives are caught up in this. And that from cover to cover, this is telling that story. I heard one preacher say it like this. You know that Avengers Endgame just came out, right? Two billion dollars in a weekend or so. What is that? It's 21 different movies telling one big grand story. 21 different parts that you can watch all of them, but one grand overarching big story to the whole thing. You know what this is? This is 40-somewhat authors over two millennia across different continents, all telling from cover to cover the same story. You think of that. You know, you know how it is that people who lived across different centuries, from different cultures, on different spots of the planet, all testified in a cohesive way so that from cover to cover it told one story because these are the God-breathed words of God. This wasn't the imagination of man. That across the millennia, and across authors, and across continents, and across cultures, and across languages, they told one story to make you wise to salvation through faith 
in Christ Jesus who is presented here. Timothy, continue. Continue in what you have learned and have been acquainted with from your childhood on, knowing from whom you learned it, that you might become wise to faith, to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. But also, Timothy, continue, because this book is profitable. Right? That's what he says, right, in verse 16? This book is profitable for what? For teaching, for reproof, for correction. That is to say, not this way, but that way. For reproof, that's correction and and correction. Not this way, that way. For teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Timothy, you are to continue in my way because you started on this path with me and not them. And you do so by holding on to this book that you've known from your infancy on. It can make you wise for salvation, but also because this book is profitable to accomplish everything God's called you to do. So that this book is sufficient and and efficient for your teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, to equip you for every good work that God has called you to. You only need not stray, only need not veer, only need not go in a new direction, but continue. Here's what that means for Timothy. Here's what that means for Seven Mile Road. Here's what that means for the pastors of Seven Mile Road. That we are to never stray from this book. For every pastor that will be raised here, every church planter that was sent from here, we are never to stray from this book. We are never to veer off course, but to again today be reminded this book really is true, and this book really does work. I'd ask the ministers of our church, the pastors here, brothers, when we started Did we not start? And for every man who has an aspiration to the work of an overseer, a pastor, a planter, does that not originate from this burning conviction that what the people of God need most is this book? When we started, didn't we start because we were so convinced that what God's people need the most, what our city needs the most, is someone to stand up and open to this book and declare its truths? And to bring the truths of this word to bear on the lives of its people. That's what we were convinced of. And the question for us is, do we still believe it? Are we still convinced of it? Because we know that sooner rather than later, pews will be filled with people who are discouraged. People who are struggling with doubt. People who are suffering from illness. People who are struggling with financial problems crisis of various kinds, are we still convinced that what is needed most and what is sufficient to equip every one of our people to do every good work that God has for them is found in this book? Do we still believe it? And are we still committed to this work? I'll borrow an illustration from my friend Matt Cruz up in Boston. Matt Cruz coached high school basketball, and he, and he told the story of having this one particular center. I'll, I'll relate it in a way that we can understand. You know, when we were watching the 76ers play in the playoffs, I remember watching with friends and hearing people scream at our center, Joel Embiid, especially when this seven-foot beast of a man would fade from the paint and start shooting threes. 
We got so frustrated. You know why? We've got other guys, smaller guys, quicker guys that can hit jump shots around there. We've only got one seven-foot beast. And so what we need this guy to do is to do the thing that only he can do. We need you in the paint, throwing elbows and boxing people out and grabbing reboards and posting up. No one else can do that. You've got to be the man to do that. And so don't fade from that work. It's dirty work. It's often unnoticed work. The crowd doesn't cheer when you block someone out just like they do when someone hits a three-pointer. But you've got to do that work. We need you not to fade from that work. We need you to give yourself to this work. And so the call of this passage would be to every pastor, there will be lots of things that tempt us to fade. There will always be more organizing that needs to do. More administrating that needs to be administrated. More, more cultural relevance. More hipness. More coolness. More awareness. More presence. There will always be something pulling. But the man of God in this passage is equipped by the word of God to bring the word of God to bear on the people in a way that no one else is called to do. And so the call of this passage is, brothers, let's not fade from the ministry of the word. It's why we got called into this work. It's to teach this word and live this word and embrace this word and convince that this word is what our people need. And you, Seven Mile Road, you are never to have a leader that doesn't hold this book. You are never to embrace or call a pastor that doesn't believe in this book and isn't, 1 Timothy 3, able to teach this book. So that 134 years from now, if we're around, may it be that its leaders are people of the book. Timothy, continue in the God-breathed words. But listen, let me end with this. This is not just for the elders of Seven Mile Road. You, man of God, you, woman of God, will be equipped by the word of God to every good work that God has for you. Which means you need this book. When you've got that coworker that you didn't even plan but stumbles into a conversation about faith and religion, you need the book because this book is able to make your coworker wise to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. What they need from you then is perhaps your story, perhaps your testimony, perhaps your friendship, perhaps your relationship, perhaps time with you, but none of that will save them. Hear that. Spending time with them won't save them. You relating to them won't save them. Your friendship won't save them. At some point, you will have to bring the word of God to bear on the heart of this coworker. And you'll have to show them from this book how they can be made wise to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Brother, you need this book when you're in soul care with a friend. When a brother from this church sits across from you, and tells you that he feels condemned by his sin, that God can't possibly forgive him, can't possibly love him after what he's done or done again. You need to be the one. Your presence is great. Your empathy is great. Your counseling is great. But at some point, you're going to have to tell him, Brother, the God-breathed words of God tell us that the Apostle John said that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. At some point, you're going to have to tell them, the Apostle John also says us that whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. You're going to have to be the one to bring to bear and say, the Apostle Paul, 
in the God-breathed book, told us, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus who walk according to his spirit and not the flesh. You have to bring that to bear. When a sister tells you that she feels afraid, when, when, when the problems of life is causing all kinds of anxiety, sister, you have to be the one that brings Isaiah 43 to her and tells her, fear not. Fear not, O Jacob. Fear not, O Israel, for I am with you. Though you go through the rivers, I'll walk with you. Though you go through the fire, they won't consume you. Though you go through the waters, they won't overwhelm you. I'm with you. I love you because you are honored and precious in my eyes. Fear not, for I am with you. You need to give them not the puffs of air, not the thought of the moment, not the wisdom of the age. You need to give them the God-breathed words of this book. And to the extent that you give yourself to it, you, man of God and woman of God, will be complete and equipped for every good work that God has for you to do. There is perhaps much that the Spirit can do in us in way of conviction in causing us to confess and repent of our negligence of this book. But here's what Paul is telling Timothy. Timothy, you have come this far. Embracing my way of life and following this word from God. So don't sway and don't veer and don't chart off on a new course. Remain, stay, continue, and finish even as you began. Let's pray together. God, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you might take the word of God and bring it into our hearts and that it would find good soil, enough for it to take root and bear fruit. We pray that you would help us today to be continuing in the way and in the word that's shown for us in this passage. And for any who don't know you, for any who haven't yet received your scriptures, we pray that you would help them to examine their own Bibles and to see and to examine it and to evaluate it and that you might lead them ultimately to truth. Come do more than we knew to ask, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We come now to communion, and communion is to shout louder better than any preacher ever could the good news of Jesus Christ. You were made wise to salvation through faith in Jesus. And what's this faith in Jesus? It's this bread that's here broken as a reminder that the body of Jesus was broken for you. It's this cup here as a reminder that the blood of Jesus Christ was shed for you to ensure that you might be delivered and safely brought into the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ was crushed and broken. And so with renewed faith, with renewed repentance, renewed again in looking to him, you who know Christ, who have identified with him in baptism or are part of his body, the church, are welcome to come to this meal and to be reminded again and renewed in the saving grace of Jesus Christ. If you're here and you don't know Jesus as Lord, remember the warning of this passage not to play church, not to have a form of godliness without its...
Father everlasting, the all-creating one, God Almighty. Through your Holy Spirit, conceiving Christ the Son, Jesus our Savior, I believe in God the Father, I believe in Christ the Son, I believe in the Holy Spirit, our God is three in one, I believe in the resurrection, that we will rise again, or I believe in the name of Jesus. Our judge and our defender suffered and crucified. Forgiveness is in you. Descended into darkness, you rose in glorious light. Ever seated high. I believe in God our Father. I believe in Christ the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit, our God is three in one. I believe in the resurrection, that He will rise again. For I believe in the name of Jesus. I Christ is Lord. I believe in you. I believe you rose again. I believe that Jesus Christ is Christ the Son, I believe in the Holy Spirit, our God is three in one, I believe in the resurrection, that we will rise again, for I believe in the name, believe in life eternal, I believe in life eternal, I believe in the virgin birth. I believe in the saints' communion and in your holy church. I believe in the resurrection when Jesus comes again. For I believe in the name of Jesus. For I believe in the name of Jesus. For I believe in the name of Jesus.
our Father. I believe in God our Father. I believe in Christ the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Our God is three in one. I believe in the resurrection that we will rise again. For I believe in the And thou, my true my 
Sing, oh God, be my everything. These words as our blessing and benediction as we go from here. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you